You've got 10 seconds. The countdown going on right now. I'm sorry, I'm not doing it the wrong way. This is Play by Play Cast, the world's number one sports media podcast. Wait, what? Nobody's fact checking it, just keep going. Here we go. Who the hell is Happy Gilmore? Got all that on camera, right, John? Sure, I did. All right, because the red light was not on. The podcast about play by play broadcasters for play by play broadcasters, hosted by a play by play broadcaster. Oh, you can stick me in some kind of Italian boat because that one is Gondola. Now, from New York. Really? All the big ones are from New York. Your host, Joe Godet. It's still Joel. Yeah, he will not be able to see very well, Cotton. 177 episodes deep into play-by-play cast thanks as always for the subscribe the stream the download this is the podcast about play-by-play broadcasters for play-by-play broadcasters hosted by play-by-play broadcaster it's a professional development podcast that dives into the tips tricks experience stories process and preparation of some of the biggest and best play-by-play announcers in the business episode 176 came your way on wednesday this week Pete Pranica, the television voice of the Memphis Grizzlies, was our guest. Ian Eagle was the voice you heard on episode 175. Krista Blunk on 174. If you are new to the podcast, the entire archives are available to you. Do go back and uh, take a look at who's back there. Because it's always fun for me. Like when We're 177 episodes in. And I always just kind of get a kick at scrolling back through... And not even going that deep at some of the other guests that we've had on. You know, episode 160, Greg Rubel from BYU. He just got a brand new basketball player. Matt Harms committed there. Uh, You know, Quint Kesnick was a great analyst sideline interview back uh, almost a year ago. John Walters from Iowa State. And that's just a year. Uh, Kevin Walter, uh, Kevin, Kevin Walters, Kevin Harlan was our guest May 31st of 2019. A little bit less than a year ago. Episode number one. 52 go back through the archives if you're new to the podcast if you're not and check out uh, some of the previous editions of pxp cast spiro didis is our guest today the voice from cbs he is one of the nfl voices ncaa basketball voices for cbs where he's been full-time since 2014 when he left the new york knicks he was working with cbs uh during his time with the knicks and before that with the lakers spiro is from new jersey paramus new jersey he went to fordham in new york city graduating in 2001 he is one of the the I, there's got to be a name the, the fordham fellows he's a, he's the mike breen michael k chris carino fordham has a great lineage of sports broadcasters past and present and spiro Ditas fits very well in with that pantheon and we'll talk a little bit about uh, fordham over the course of the podcast but spiro graduated in 2001 and not long after that became the radio voice of the los angeles lakers at Just 25, 26 years old. In 2005, he moved out to L.A., and he'll talk a little bit about the story. Knowing nobody, uh, really just submitted his tape to see what happens, and he wound up getting the job. He was the voice of the Lakers from 05 through 11, when then he went to the New York Knicks from 11 to 14, 
and uh, now full-time with CBS, amongst other things that Spiro has done in his career. We'll touch a little bit on his time with NFL Network uh, in this episode as well. Uh, Roe is incredibly... Oh, and, and, and the Olympics. He, he did the Olympics. Uh, he is Greek. He did the Olympics in Athens, which was a cool experience. I know for him, um, we didn't talk a ton about it on this episode, but you can find interviews with Spiro out there where he talks about his experience uh, early in his career working for NBC on the Olympics. Uh, get into a lot of things we love on this podcast, the wonk stuff, uh, voice technique and voice preparation and vocal training that Spiro went through starting in his time at NFL Network and that he still does to this day. That is on the podcast, uh, making big strides when you're very young and how you handle that. We'll dive into with Spiro on this podcast as well. Good conversation. We have a lot of Syracuse folks on this pod. I went to Syracuse, which is part of it. There, I mean, there's also just a lot of us out there. But I, every time I run into a Fordham person, I feel like I get like flack, and I'm like, you gotta have Spiro on. I feel like people have always said you gotta have, you gotta have Spiro on, and finally uh, we were able to make that happen this week. I had reached out to him initially a while ago, and he wrote back. I was like, let's do it, and then I forgot to follow up. And then when I did follow up, it just never wound up happening. And now uh, in the times of COVID-19, we were finally able to sit down on the phone and, and have a good conversation. So Spiro Didis is our guest this week on episode number 177 of PXP Cast. I didn't know the, the backstory to you applying for the Lakers job in that you, you literally just sent your tape and then never thought about it again it was it wasn't like you mm. were you were actively hounding people down to to get the job you just applied to apply so to speak like throw my name in the mix mm. and see what happens and then they called um so yeah. I'm, I'm curious kind of what your mindset was going into that and and take me back to being you know young 20s Spiro Ditas rolling the dice and then when you actually hit and that phone rings what runs through your mind um, it, I still, when I think about it now, I still get the same feelings of euphoria <laughs> and just shock that, that I had back then. And, you know, to, I, I guess to really understand, you just have to kind of bring yourself back to being a couple of years out of school. And I have been very, very fortunate in terms of, of some of the opportunities that I had gotten um, very soon after I left Fordham, you know, whether it was uh, doing some uh, fill in update anchor shifts at WFAN, which for all of us who are in the business know is kind of the place to be in terms of sports talk radio in the country, right in the heart of New York City. Um, I had the opportunity to do some arena football league first as a sideline guy, then as a play-by-play guy for the New Jersey franchise. Uh, NBA TV had hired me to do some fill-in work and then some more stuff on the regular uh, and so I was, I was really happy. I mean, I was, I was having a blast. I mean, I was, I was getting these great opportunities to work. I, I, at that point hadn't been forced to move from my hometown, which as you know, you know, 99.9% of, of broadcast students upon graduation have to go to a smaller market, smaller town to, you know, you basically go where the work is. I had been very fortunate that I was able to stay home and in New York, which is very rare. And so I was, I mean, I was content. I was just living the dream. And I remember picking up the daily news one morning, reading the sports section. And I think it was Bob Raceman, their uh, radio and TV Sports critic uh, wrote kind of in a little, you know, his, his usual Tuesday, Friday column. And there was a little blurb at the bottom saying that the Lakers were shaking up their broadcast booth. 
And so I knew that Joel Myers was going to be, you know, moving into their uh, TV position, moving over from radio. And so I called my agent at the time, uh, a man by the name of John Cirillo, who uh, started out as uh, our relationship started as uh, me taking one of his courses at Fordham. Uh, John had a, a great PR company, still owns the PR company, Cirillo World in New York. And so he had been helping me kind of as my quasi agent actually while I was still in school. And so I called John and I said, you know, I've got no shot at this. This is going to be just a shot in the dark. But, you know, do you think I should go through the trouble? Should we go through the trouble of applying for it? And he said, absolutely. You know, why not? So, you know, I put together my little dinky demo reel. And, you know, I think I wrote some some letter, you know, to to whom it may concern. And, uh, you know, I'd love to apply for this job. And, you know, I literally sent it, went to the FedEx station and on uh, Route 17 in Paramus, shipped it out and then literally thought nothing of it for, I think, about a, mo- a little over a month. And then I got the phone call. Still remember where I was. I was working at my father's diner in Union, New Jersey. And uh, my phone rang, and it was a, an area code I was not familiar with. And uh, it was Don Martin, who was the, uh, the general manager at KLAC 570, which was at that point the longtime flagship station for the Lakers. You know, you know anyone who lived in L.A. and listened to Chick Hearn, you know, knew those call letters of KLAC. And, uh, and Don told me that there was interest and would I be willing to fly out to L.A.? And that kind of started the process. I mean, I... I remember having to sit down like it was just it, it was just it was one of those moments you never forget. What do you think? And I know you've said in the past that there were various reasons you think you wound up getting that position as well and that your name was one that intrigued them and maybe looking for a younger guy. But I'm sure there were lots of younger guys that sent tapes in. Like, what do you think about young Spiro Ditas stood out? What were you doing at a young age that that when somebody popped in that tape, they went, yeah, we can work with this. Well, first of all, I, I don't think anything has changed from what I've, I've talked about it in the past. I mean, it was it was like at most things in this business, it's timing and it's luck. Um, I, I you know the Lakers had 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 Chick for for years and years, over forty years as their guy. You know, then Paul Sunderland for for a couple of years, and then Joel. And so I think at that point they were just ready to really hit the reset button and hire someone on the radio side who was young. Um, who they felt like they can kind of grow into the position with, you know, to really establish themselves and just establish something new. And so, you know, I'm sure that there were other young guys that applied for it. I, I know they were, there were, in fact, um, you know, maybe, maybe there was just, they, they could hear the eagerness. They could hear maybe the determination that I had at that point, but, you know, I'm not, you know, under any, you know, illusions. It was, it was strictly luck. It was strictly timing, right place, right time. Um, you know, who knows, you know, that's, that's probably for Don and for Keith Harris, who was the uh, the head of broadcasting at the time for the Lakers to answer. But man, I, I felt like the luckiest person in the world, man. It was just one of those euphoric surreal moments in your life that uh, you never quite forget. I know you've said that you've uh, listen, either listened back to those tapes or, or thought about listening back to those tapes and, and it makes you cringe. Uh, yeah. What did you learn in that season? Like what was the outside of just what it's like to be in the NBA and to be in that kind of atmosphere, like from a technical broadcasting standpoint, um, how'd you get better over the course of, of that first or, or maybe even second NBA season? Well, I said that still holds. If I listen to any kind of clips from that first year and even the first couple of years, it's literally like, 
like fingernails on a chalkboard. I mean, I, I, if, if I walked into a room and that clip was playing, I would literally turn around and run out of the room. I mean, that's how bad it was. I, I had this thing when I was younger, I was so, you know, the, the guys I looked up to in broadcasting, you know, the Al Michaels, uh, the Mike Breens, these guys that, that had the big voice, you know, the big kind of on-air presence. That's kind of what I always strove to be and to, to have. And I was so self-conscious of how I sounded because I sounded, you know, as young as I was at that point. And so, you know, it was almost like I was doing, um, you know, a, a Saturday Night Live skit, like a parody of what a sports announcer sounded like. Like, that's how bad it was. And that's how hard I was trying to, to sound like something, someone I was not. Um, so first to me, I had to get comfortable in my own skin as a broadcaster. And that's, that's how you, just how you sound. It's, it's that simple. Um, and for me at that point, I was just maniacal in calling a game, getting the tape, going back to my apartment in LA and listening and literally taking a piece of paper out and making a list of everything I hated, um, and things that I wanted to work on and get better at, um, the one good thing about moving to LA in a new city at that point was I didn't know anyone. I had no family. I had no friends at that point. So for me, it was just, it was work 24 seven. And I was able to really focus on, on the job and, and getting better. But it was such a whirlwind, man. It was, you know, when, when you're that young and you get hired by a team, you you have so much to learn, not only on the broadcast side, but traveling with an NBA team and how to conduct yourself and, you know, for me, I was just like, I, I'll never forget getting on the walking on the plane for the first time for our first road trip. And, you know, you see Phil Jackson, you know, there's Kobe Bryant, um, you know, all of it's these guys. It, it, it was I mean, it's it's really hard to describe what the feelings were like. I mean, I just remember sweating through my clothes a lot, whether it was being on the plane around all these people or, you know, actually broadcasting the games. But, you know, it's one of those moments where you realize you have to, you have to grow up quickly and you have to get acclimated to this, especially here and especially for this franchise, because obviously the standard that Chick sent, that Chick set here for so long, they were just so used to broadcast excellence. So I felt like I really needed to figure it out and figure it out quickly. Uh, how did you not sound as young as you looked? Like other than just getting older, like what did you, what are the things that you worked on? And, and that could be from a things you said, or even just from a, like the physical tenor of your voice. Like how did you hone the instrument to, to sound older and not forced to sound older and natural? Well, first and foremost, I think I have to credit puberty kind of took hold and, <laughs> and allowed me to grow a little bit, you know, the natural part of how your voice progresses, uh, for me, it was just it, it was that constant listening to myself and realizing, you know, I got I got to pull back a little bit. You know, it's just it sounds too forced. Um, so it was really trial and error, I think, for the most part. For me, it was listening to other guys, um, just just immersing myself in it. And, you know, the, the other thing is when you're you know, at that point, I had done only college. And so to go from college to the pros was, was kind of another step up in terms of speed. So I had to get adjusted to, to the cadence, to, you know, the rapid fire nature of the pace of the NBA game. And you can only do that by getting reps and getting practice. So I remember those first preseason games for me being so huge, you know, almost like a player, you know, you're getting your body and your muscles to where they need to be. To me, I, I equated to, you know, to someone like a marathon runner, 
um, when you broadcast games on in the NBA on radio, it's so different than anything else. Mm. And now when you know, I, I do so few games on radio and I jump on with Westwood one to do maybe one or two games a year, that first game, I'm, I'm really struggle, you know, and I'm someone who did radio <clears throat> full NBA seasons for almost 10 years. And now having not done it as much anymore, it really is, you know, you're, your vocal cords kind of get out of shape, so to speak. And so I remember it took me a while to get into that mode to be able to do so many games on the radio because, you know, a lot of people at that point, I didn't really know how to speak. You know, I'd never, you know, now I've had a chance to work with, with a voice coach and you kind of learn some, some things, how to warm up and all those types of things. At that point, I had no clue about any of that. So I was really just pushing just basically not doing it the way you're supposed to. So at the end of a game, I basically almost lost my voice every game. You know, that's how, that's how badly and, and, you know, technically incorrectly, if you will, I was working. And so I just, I was really starting from zero in terms of trying to figure out the technical aspect of broadcasting and broadcasting at the NBA level. Do you do stuff to warm up now? I do. Yeah, I do. Working at NFL Network, one of the great things about being there, as long as I was, I had a chance to work with a guy named Arthur Joseph, who was one of the preeminent voice coaches in the business. I mean, he's worked with like opera singers and presidents and all of these really important people. And NFL Network hired him to come in and work with with their on-air talent. And Arthur is just this amazing guy. If anyone has a chance to look him up, he uh, he really starts from the ground up in terms of teaching you, you know, to use your diaphragm and how important breathing is and all of these things that you never think about when you're broadcasting. He really forces you to to look at it from a from a technical standpoint. And so. Yeah, I still do the, the vocal warm-ups that he he showed us way back when, and and try to stick to what he he taught us because uh, it really really does make a difference in terms of uh, in terms of how you sound and also how you recover and and protect your voice. You know, during the course of a of a long season when you're traveling through cold weather climates and on airplanes and you know in airports and all of the things that could kind of damage your voice. So. Um, yeah, for sure. For sure. I try to stick to that plan. What did like Solomon Wilcots think the first time he ever walked in the booth and you were like vocalizing before a game? He looked at me like I was completely insane. <laughs> <laughs> Luckily, you know, Solomon had you worked at NFL Network, so he knew Arthur. Okay. And, uh, you know, all of us who have worked with Arthur kind of do our little Arthur impressions and we kind of, you know, maybe gently make fun of him, but we, we love him dearly. And he's, he's really, I'm telling you, man, he's, he's made careers, uh, sweetheart guy and, uh, really owe him a lot. Uh, you mentioned obviously going back and forth between radio and television. Uh, it's a cliche question. People ask me all the time. Uh, is there one that you enjoy more than the other? And is there a reason why? Well, I think, First of all, if we're being honest, the money's a lot better on the TV side for sure. So that's always nice. But I think if you told me, you know, you can have a great game on TV or you can have a great game on radio, what would be more meaningful to you? For me, it's easy. It's radio Hmm. because that that's for for most of us who are play by play announcers. Radio is where we started. So that's kind of where our love for the craft and for the industry and for the job really started. And to me, it's it's really your first love. And, you know, as we all know in life, there's nothing quite like your first love. And, you know, to me, just just knowing that the listener 
is totally blind and totally dependent on my description and my call and everything that I'm sharing over the airways with them. If, if I can paint the word picture for them and have them, you know, turn the radio off at the end of the game and say, wow, like I felt that I can see that that to me is so much more satisfying than having a great game on TV, which, which is awesome. I mean, we all want that and we want to be, um, you know, great TV announcers, of course, but you know, on TV, you're more of a traffic cop. They can see it. You're kind of enhancing the broadcast, maybe with a, with a story or a statistical nugget on a, a player or a team, uh, the storytelling and all that weaving things, your, your analyst in and out. But to me, radio where the, the listener is totally dependent on you to paint that word picture. I mean, that there's a responsibility that comes with that. And when you can really kind of hit the home run and, you know, we all know when we put the headset down at the end of the game, whether we've had a good, strong game or not. Mm -hmm. And when that happens, it's just, to me, there's nothing quite like that feeling. The reason I ask too, is because for, for me, television, I think is harder because everybody, Mm -hmm. people, people always tell me that, well, TV's easier. You talk less. And my response is, well, yeah, you have to think about when you're like you, there's so much thinking Mm -hmm. because you have to think about when you're not talking. And while that's happening, you've got to listen to the person next to you and be able to integrate that into what you're saying. And like I, being the traffic cop to me is can there's just so many moving pieces. I'm curious how you navigate all of that and the way that you uh, got comfortable being able mm. to listen to the person in your ear, listen to the person next to you, watch what's happening on the field in front of you and create that symphony. Mm. Oh, you just reminded me. So, so my very first TV game was uh, working for Atlantic 10 television, which was Atlantic 10 was the same conference that uh, my alma mater Fordham played. in. so I, I had a chance to work some fill in games for them. And I never forget first couple of minutes, first couple of seconds into my first game, the producer talks to me while I was talking. And I literally, I literally stopped like <laughs> mid sentence. I was like, you know, what's going on? I was so confused why he would talk to me while I was talking. I remember it was like five seconds of dead air. And he got back on in my ear. He's like, he's like, dude, keep, keep talking. Why did you stop? And it was like one of those first awkward moments, but you know, look, there's challenges to each side. Obviously the challenge on the radio side for me was the speed, the cadence kind of keeping up with the action. Once you kind of master that and get that down, it becomes, you know, a little bit easier, so to speak. Um, Radio for the analyst I've always found is very difficult. Your windows are tighter, you know, to get in with a concise thought while keeping it brief is, is very challenging, certainly for, for the analyst. Uh, I do agree with you. TV is challenging in that, you know, you have to be more of a storyteller. Your preparation is, is always important, certainly on the radio side, but on TV, you really have to be prepared because, you know, it's not like, like we said earlier, they can see what's going on. So it's, it's less about the descriptions and more about weaving all of the storylines together, getting your analysts, setting that up with, with the lead-ins that they need and keeping things entertaining for sure. Because on the radio side, there's just, there's way less of an opportunity for by-play with your analyst. It's more about, you know, the play-by-play guy calling the action, laying out, letting the analyst come in, say what he's going to say, and then the action continues. TV, it's, there's obviously a little bit more downtime and way more opportunities to have that conversation with your analyst and um, and to keep the uh, the audience informed and entertained and, and everything you have to do during the course of a telecast. 
I know you've said there's there's sometimes too much information to prep for nowadays, particularly when you, when you do the NFL every week. Um, and I, you know, I, I sat on the the STAA seminars they did yesterday with uh, Jim Nance and, and and Kevin Harlan. Both actually said that they they're not concerned with heights and weights unless it's you know like mm. a, a dog bites man, uh, you know, six foot eight, <laughs> four hundred pounds. Otherwise, it's right. yeah, everybody expects an offensive lineman to be big, um, so they push that aside. Uh, what are the types of things that uh, you can wean out in terms of preparation or they're uh, conversely things that are most important to you uh, that maybe we wouldn't think about? Well, first of all, it's, it's taken me, it's taken me a couple of years to really get my, the blueprint down for how I prepare for the game because the NFL and, and the NBA is certainly in the same category, but the volume of research material that we have now at our fingertips for an NFL game, it's, I can't even describe how, how much it is. So the challenge, at least for me, is just determining what I need and what I don't, because if you don't, you can just get swallowed up by the volumes and the reams of of research that exists. Um, I, you know, for me, the, the stats stuff, I'm not a huge numbers guy. I mean, obviously it's, it's, it's a huge part of a broadcast and, you know, especially now in a day and age where analytics have become such a prevalent part of this, not only from a broadcast perspective, but from a coaching perspective as well, there, there's certainly a lot of value in that. But what I try to do is really focus on, on the storylines, um, you know, where a guy has come from, uh, what he's been through in his career, you know, the, the kind of the, the story behind the story of these guys, the stats are going to be there. And by the time I get to Sunday, I've got all the stats I could ever possibly need. I want to be able to kind of tell the story behind the player, um, behind the team, where they've been, you know, and really just inform the viewer of that part of it. And I think the guy who is such a master at that is Al Michaels. You know, he, you know, a guy makes a big play or a big run. Al will, you know, mention, uh, you know, pick a player, player X, you know, had a great college career at uh, the University of Louisville, you know, tore his ACL his senior year, overcame that, you know, great first three years in the league, just like a quick snapshot of a player that he can throw in during the course of a telecast so seamlessly that that's kind of the blueprint that I like. Um, because I've always enjoyed that when I've watched the game. And that's, that's kind of how it goes back to what we were talking about earlier, how you build your style as an announcer. I always, you know, watch the game. I picked out the guys that I liked and I tried to emulate those guys as best I could. And you, you try, you steal a little bit from each guy, you know, Jim Nance, you know, his, his on-air presence, his overall command of the game, you know, the, uh, the mellifluousness of his voice, you know, that, that sultriness to his voice. I mean, all of these guys are just so incredibly gifted. You try to take from each what you can, but um, uh, I guess I've gone off on a little bit of a tangent, but you know, it just, that, that's kind of how I approach it. It's, it's, I focus a little bit more now on the storylines behind each player and teams and coaches and all the people that we're going to be talking about and kind of work my way towards the, the statistical side of the preparation for each game. Fitting that into the broadcast, if I can, if I can move you from the NFL to like when you do the NCAA tournament on television, mm-hmm. um, it's one thing I'm sure. If you want to, hey, let's dive into a little bit of who these people are in Week Seven of the NFL season. But when you get, mm-hmm. you know, two seed versus fifteen seed, lot on the line, big stakes, NCAA tournament. Nobody's ever heard of the school that is the fifteen seed, nor do they know who these players are. 
uh, it's the interesting balance of having to introduce, and maybe they don't even know who the players in the two seed are, um, of mm. having to introduce the public to these players and to these teams while also not making it kind of story time because the stakes are so big. Uh, how do you find the right balance of being able to, to tell that story? Because that's, like, that's what I love to do too. That's my favorite part of it. Um, but in a big game situation like that, not being too much of a, of a biographer and still a, a historian of the moment. Well, it's a great question. I, I, for one, and I, you know, I've talked to so many guys who, who broadcast the NCAA tournament on the TV and the radio side. And I think all of us who do that, who are lucky enough to work that tournament and that event every year, all of us feel such an incredible responsibility to those student athletes who are on those teams and in those moments, because as we know, 99.9% of them are not going to play in the NBA. You know, they're not going to get to the next level. And so for them, this is their moment, right? I mean, this is like the pinnacle of their career, everything they've worked for since they were little kids and, and dreamed about playing in the big dance and March madness. And they're finally here. And so as a broadcaster, we are basically the conduit between them and their families and America who, who are wondering who these, who these kids are. And so, you know, when we get our assignments on the evening of selection Sunday, probably around eight, nine o'clock Eastern time, I mean, we're hunkering down in a room and getting into those notes, you know, and then really for me again, you know, you talk about, I talk about wanting to, to tell the story of an NFL player and an NFL team on a Sunday telecast, multiply that by a hundred when you're talking about the NCAA tournament, because again, it's just, for me, I just feel such a responsibility to tell these kids stories and to do them justice because they work so hard for this. And it's such a huge event in their lives. Um, you just want to do them justice. And so, you know, I, every year I'll, I'll, you know, find out who the SIDs are, the sports information directors for each team, you know, and, you know, if you have to bribe them, you bribe them with some, some stuff, but, uh, you know, you just try to pick their brains and ask them, man, just give me the story behind these kids, you know, find out as much as you can and, uh, and just try to tell their stories as best you can. Uh, and, and you know, the, the other thing you asked is the challenge of not getting too much with it. That, that's just a feel thing for me. It's, it's working a couple of tournaments, you know, seeing what the, what the games go like. And, and, and obviously the game dictates if it's a, if it's an incredibly competitive game, obviously you have to pick your spots, but if it's a blowout, you know, you have a few more opportunities to get in some of the backstory. So for me, it's, it's all repetition, getting to a point where you're comfortable enough to make those types of decisions within a telecast and um, and that's where a great producer comes into play. That's where a great analyst certainly comes into play. And, and all the production people uh, having a plan before these games and uh, and then executing it once uh, once the ball's thrown up. Did you did you ever work with Marty Glickman or was he was he sure? Still yeah, he was still around when you were. He was, yeah. Yeah. Marty, Marty um, was there for I want to say two, at least two years, maybe even three in my four years. OK, but um you know, Marty, for, for people that, that didn't grow up in New York, you know, was just one of the titans of the industry. He was basically Marv Albert before Marv Albert. <laughs> um, Marv actually filled in for Marty uh, to get one of his first breaks, you know, to, to tell you how huge Marty Glickman was in the sports broadcast world. So when we were at Fordham, we would have this uh, this workshop for the broadcast students at WFUV radio every Wednesday morning. And somehow Fordham was able to get Marty to come in and be our kind of resident um, lecture and 
uh, it was just indescribable to have this person who we all knew was this, I mean, hall of fame presence, hall of fame figure in sports broadcasting, come into a classroom with like 10 or 15 of us. We'd all gather around him. He'd have a tape recorder. We'd all be holding our, our cassette, um, with our latest demo reel. And one by one, he'd call us up and, and Marty was not, the great thing about Marty was that he would not sugarcoat his critiques. Like he would, he would let you have it. You know, he would put you on the spot in front of everyone. Well, why are you doing this? You know, like, why, where are you going? Like he would completely, I don't want to say embarrass you, but he would call you out and really challenge you. And the best exchanges were between Marty and Tony Reale. Tony was, <laughs> was a year ahead of me and he would go after Tony you know, never maliciously. I think he, he really loved Tony. He had like this affection for him and he, they would go back and forth and it got to the point where reality was just so tired of it. And he would go back at Marty and it was just, it just made for these really entertaining moments. But, but to have Marty Glickman there for me really gave me a shot of confidence really early on in the process for me. I can remember Marty calling me at home one day. I think he had listened to some of my stuff and he, he asked me if I was serious about this as a profession I told him, you know, absolutely, this is what I want to do. And he said, well, you know, kid, I think you you have what it takes. I think you have a future. And that to me was like the first wow moment that that maybe I can make this a career and I can make this my life's work. And uh, it really kind of set me on the path early on. Are there things that you still hear that he's told you um, that resonate in your mind when you do a game? Scoring time. I still hear it. I could still hear it in his New York accent, you know, scoring time, scoring time. Stop talking about this. They don't care. You know, only your mom cares about all that stuff. You know, no one's listening to listen to your voice, you know, always service the, the listener, always remember your audience and give them what they need constantly. You know, he, he talked about having one of those, um, hourglass things in front of you. And every time you turn it and the sand fills through the bottom, it's time to give scoring time, just like a constant reminder. And, uh, yeah, still can still hear his voice could still hear him, you know, with the, the gentle words of encouragement followed by, you know, three minutes of telling me everything I'm doing wrong. But, uh, it, it was a really special relationship. I know, you know, all of us, Mike Yam and Andrew Bogish, you know, the kids that, that I was, you know, at the same kind of level with at that point, Connell McShane, all of us have really fond memories of, of working with Marty. When he says always, you know, pay service to the, the listener, uh, what else is most important in that time and score and what follows next? Like what's in his line of this is the, I mean, outside of the basics of, you know, who's got the ball location, that type of detail, or is that really, do, do we, do we tend to overcomplicate radio sometimes and just the, the better you are, the more simplistic you can be? Well, I think it's interesting, you know, back then, you know, we're talking about the early aughts. So this is maybe late nineties, early aughts. So the, because the, the medium has changed and because the way we digest sports has changed so much and it's become even more of a visual medium. And, and I hate to say it, but radio, you know, not as prevalent as yeah. it was back then. Now I think it's more important to be simple and to stick to the basics back then it was more, you know, as Marty said, the words I view and, and painting that picture as vibrant as you could. So, you know, Marty was, would always say, 
you know, guy at the free throw line, don't only tell me whether he makes or miss, tell me what he looks like. You know, is he a, a wiry six, seven forward? Is he kind of a burly, you know, six foot, six inch, 275 pound player, you know, really give me an added layer of description. You know, what, what does the crowd look like? You know, have they handed out the white t-shirts? Is it a whiteout? Is it, uh, you know, are the seats, tell me about the color of the seats in the arena. You know, I don't want, if I'm, if I'm a listener on the radio, I don't want to be missing out in terms of what that person in the arena is seeing. I want to be able to, to have that same picture. And that, that's how he always challenged us. Now I think it's different. Like we said, I think, you know, because most people are watching on TV when they're in the car for a couple of minutes, they're not really as in tune with needing all of that. They just want scoring time mm-hmm. where the ball is and, and just the, the, the basics that you need there in the course of a broadcast. On top of Marty, uh, what does Bob Aaron's mean to you and your development early on? Oh man, Bob, uh, you know, kind of an early father figure for sure. You know, if Marty kind of let you have it, Bob was always the guy to put, put his hand on your shoulder afterwards and tell you, you know, Marty really thinks highly of, of where you're going and what you're doing, you know? And he, he was just, he was just such a close bond with Bob. He, he had such an affection for the broadcast students. And he, the one thing about Bob, he, he would, he would have to get all these guest speakers in. So he would have to call, you know, Mike Breen to come in and Mike was great. And Bob Papa, who is the longtime radio voice of the New York giants and, and Michael Kay and Bob was so persistent with these guys who are of course, so busy and working and traveling and they would all kind of laugh. My God, I can't get Bob off my back. You know, he, he was just, he was so pushy to get these these big pros to come in to talk to us because he knew how important it was. And so his advocating for us um, really made the world a difference and really is one of the things that made Fordham and WFUV such a special place to, to learn and to hone your skills as a young broadcast student. And so you you talk about an affection that we all had for Marty. Bob is like just really someone very special to all of us and uh, someone we still keep in touch with and, and um, just a very, very warm-hearted, sweetheart guy who uh, just really fought hard for, for the broadcast students. FUV was was his life, and uh, we all owe him a lot for sure. Uh, all of that has to give you a fairly thick skin at a fairly young age. Um, and, mm. and you know, I, I know we talked about going to Los Angeles and and kind of learning on the fly for the first couple of years of your career there. Uh, you have had, correct me if I'm wrong, you've had three full-time jobs in your in your life. And that's the Knicks, the Lakers, and national television. Um, mm. So when it comes, you know, we, we said at the beginning, you know, a lot of times people will have to go to small markets where not a lot of people hear you and you can make mistakes and grow and get better. Uh, how, what did it do for you? And how did it change you that the people that were listening to you were in those markets and on those stages? And that's how you had to get better um, without that kind of margin for error. Well, you know, you not not that I needed to put any more pressure on myself, you know, when the <laughs> Lakers hired me in 2005, but I was reminded very quickly of of the standard that Chick had sent. Um, I, I've told this story before, but there was a guy who, after every one of my games, Laker games, would wait for me at the end of my at the end of the table where we broadcast from. He was this Laker fanatic. He'd be this guy that'd sit up in the in the, the nosebleeds, and he would come down and he would walk me from the booth down to my car, and he would basically tell me, 
how awful I sounded, you know, kind of in a cute little way. But he's like, you know, man, we had chick here for all these years. You're never going to be chick. You know, you're, you're doing OK, but man, you know, you, you got a long way to go. You thanks. know, and yeah. yeah, thanks, buddy. Um, and then it got to the point where he's like, all right, you're not so terrible. Like you're you're doing a little better. You know, we, we can we can tolerate you. And it was it was just like a subtle reminder of what I was stepping into at that point. Um, you know, because for, for most of us that grew up on the East coast and for most NBA fans that are not in LA, Chick Hearn is, I mean, he's basically the Vince Scully of, of basketball broadcasting, just super, super gifted in terms of his, uh, his style and his calls, you know, a guy who invented so much of the basketball vernacular. And so this was a fan base that was used to having someone of his ilk and his level. And here I come in as like this 25, 26 year old kid who knows nothing basically about the craft or the business. <laughs> and so it took, it, it was very, very intimidating for me. And it, it was just something that you have to learn. You know, it's, it's sink or swim in this business. Because the minute you fail, there's, you know, there's a thousand guys behind you that want your job. So it's one of those things that I tell students a lot. You know, you really have to be confident in your own skin, be confident in who you are. You can never try to be someone you're not. You know, I look at a guy like Joe Davis who stepped in for the Dodgers and who has kind of stayed true to who he is. You know, he, he said it himself. He's like, I, I can't be Vin, you know, no one could be Vin. All I can do is, is do me. And I think it served him well. And it's really the only way to survive in this business because it is so subjective. Um, you know, if, if anyone thinks they're getting too big for their own britches, just pop on social media, pop on Twitter after you've called an NFL game on a Sunday and that'll, that'll rip you right down to your root, you know, right down to your, your foundation. People are hard on you. You really have to perform. And, and all you can do is, is be comfortable in your own skin and call these games as well as you can in your own voice. Because the minute you try to be someone you're not, I just think it's, it's a, it's a recipe for disaster. How much will you still evaluate yourself uh, after an NFL game on a, on a Sunday? Oh, it's every week, every week. You know, it's the first thing I'll do. I'll try to, I'll try to maybe even download the game before I get to the airport. If I'm lucky enough to have a couple of minutes to download it and I'll, I'll try to listen to as much as I can on the flight home. Hmm. Um, if I can, then if not, then I'll do maybe Monday morning before we get into the next week's game. But for me, it's just, it's always, and that's one of the things that Marty talked about self-evaluation so critical for getting better because to me, if you're not listening to yourself, um, you, you just don't know where you need to improve. I think you have an idea, especially as you, you get you know, further into your career and, and kind of you know where you're going and where you need to improve. But at least early on for me especially, it was so critical. And even now, every week, you know, it's, it helps, I think, listening to my partner, you know, was there, was there an area maybe where I could have complimented what he was saying? Could I have responded better to what he said here? Maybe than I did. It's little nuances like that. And, um, and it's something that I've really tried to continue. And I think I'll probably do for the rest of my career. Yeah. It's one of the things I always listen to most is, is uh, where did I, where was I not paying attention to what my partner said and how could I have better oh, for ca- sure. oh, carried on from there? Yeah. It's mortifying. He, he, there are times where he'll say something and I haven't even reacted because I'm thinking of where I want to go next or I'm yeah. maybe listening to my producer. You know, it's something that the viewer maybe won't um, realize or hear. But as you know, calling games, you hear something like that. And for me, there's nothing worse because, you know, your analyst will make a great point. You want to buy playoff it. You want to play off it. 
And, uh, and sometimes we're just in TV. It's again, it's one of the differences between radio and TV. There's so many different things going on in a TV broadcast, uh, your producer in your ear telling you where we're going next. And, you know, it's, it's, it's what makes it so challenging. You're, you're, it's, it's kind of a controlled chaos and learning how to navigate that chaos as best you can while keeping it, you know, in a flowing manner for the audience is what makes the great ones so great. Uh, Spiro, if people want to follow you on social media or, or catch more Spiro Ditas broadcasts in their life, uh, how do they find you? Uh, at Spiro Ditas, uh, S-P-E-R-O-D-E-D-E-S. Um, I'm trying to engage a little bit more on social media. I have not quite figured that out yet as some of my broadcast buddies, but that's where I'm at. And, uh, and God, I hope, uh, I hope we're calling some games soon. Because uh, it seems like we've been out of this thing for about six months with everything going on. Yeah, amen to that. That is Spiro Ditas joining us here on Play by Playcast. And, you know, one of those things we talked about at the end, listening back to yourself. And, and that is true. Like, when I listen back to my own work, and it's refreshing to hear Spiro talk about it the way he did just there. The number one thing that bothers me is when I listen to something an analyst says. And I go, oh, okay, good. All right, now where do I take this? silence like that's the thing that bugs me i think more than anything else is not hearing something my analyst said that could have driven the broadcast in a different direction but i didn't take the wheel as the play-by-play announcer so it was interesting to hear that perspective from a guy that works at spiro's level in this industry and very well um as well we are all uh you know the same in some respects we're all doing the same job we're all going through some of the same trials and tribulations just in different places and on different levels so cool to talk uh talk with spiro here on episode number 177 much more to come next week thanks for downloading this episode my name is joel gadet the music is marshmallow and we are out see everyone That will do it from St. Louis, where the score is inconclusive.